And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Jesus, you are unfailing. Does that comfort your heart this morning? Why do we have faith? Because of the character of our holy God. Because he has chosen to set his love and grace and care upon you and me. Thus, God sent his son, our unfailing Savior. Thank you so much, Chris and team, for reminding us of that truth. Well, I have the great privilege to continue our series this morning. I know you're getting a little sick of me. I'm sorry. Kyle is coming back next week. This morning's title is The Reign of the King. Last week, we saw the return of the king. This week, it is The Reign of the King. Mankind has always been consumed with designing, with building the perfect society. In fact, this is even shown in the early days, way back in Genesis 11. What did the men and women at the Tower of Babel do? They designed newer, better building materials to make a tower, and the text says, so that they would make a name for themselves, reaching up to the skies to God really, to avoid doing what God had commanded Adam and Eve to do, which was what? Multiply and fill, spread the earth. In fact, this has become a pattern that we see throughout the pages of history, and whether it's the Greeks or the Romans, whether it's the communists or the republicans, whether it's the feminists, whether it's the idealists, men and women have been searching for the the perfect political and social system. But sadly, just as in the days of Genesis 11, all of these systems have fallen short of perfection. In 1516, Sir Thomas More described an imaginary island. Do you know the name of that imaginary island that he described? He called it what? Utopia. Utopia, which basically had a perfected political and social system. And since then, this word utopia has come to symbolize a dream for many people of a place, a state of perfection. It's a place where all injustice, all disease, all conflict, all poverty, all inequality, and all pain would be removed. It's a place where mankind and all his wisdom could design and build a better place and live in harmony. Does that sound like a place you'd want to live? You sound confused by that question. Would you want to live in utopia? Would you? I would. Has mankind ever come close to this ideal? No. And after all the failed attempts throughout the centuries, mankind still hasn't learned this vital lesson that the physical and social dimensions of life will not have lasting improvement outside of divine spiritual change. And yet pride motivates man to keep trying. It's just around the next corner. It's around the next bend. See, here's the reality. Mankind seeks to change from the outside in. 
while God brings change from the inside out. But here's the truth. Someday God will bring utopia to earth. Do you believe it? It's gonna happen. Last week we covered the second coming of Christ. In fact, you have grown very familiar with this chart. I'm not gonna review everything realizing that was becoming a message all by itself. We've gone all the way up through, and last week we covered the second coming of Christ, where Christ comes from heaven to earth to bring judgment, to destroy those who would stand in opposition to him. And so this week we're going to examine how Christ restores his righteous kingdom on earth where he will reign for a literal 1,000 years. So this morning, I want us to consider three aspects of the millennial kingdom. Three aspects of the millennial kingdom. You're thankful there's not eight, nine, or ten. There was. I changed it. Three aspects. I want to tell you my purpose this morning. I was having a really hard time. What in the world does the millennial kingdom have to do with us. It's going to happen someday in the future, but I was left studying this text, studying this concept, and going, so what? I want to tell you the so what. My hope is that as we study this millennial kingdom, and as we see Christ the King reigning, that we would grow in awe of God's transforming power. What man could never do, God will. And my hope is that that will cause us to grow in thankfulness for his saving work. Christ alone has the power to save the powerless. Christ alone has the power to transform society. So I hope that will be an encouragement to you as we move through these three aspects. Let's look at the first, the importance of the millennial kingdom. Why in the world are we having a whole sermon on the millennium? Why is it important? Well, first, it's important to define our terms. The word millennium comes from two Latin words, a thousand and year. Help me out, church. What does it mean? Work with me. Some of you only had one cup of coffee, I know. A thousand years. So this is actually a Latin word that we use to describe what Revelation 20 talks about. And in the scriptures, the millennial kingdom is the phase describing the kingdom of God where Christ rules on the earth for 1,000 years. Now, the Old Testament includes many prophecies regarding the millennial kingdom. You see all of them under point one. We are going to spend the next 40 minutes and we are going to go through each and every... No, we're not going to do that. Why are there so many verses on there? And I had to pick... What was my point? It would literally take us 30 minutes to read each and every one of those. Did you know the Old Testament prophesied that much about this future millennial kingdom? Everywhere you turn in the Old Testament, there are prophecies where God is making promises to Israel. Promises to us, mostly to Israel. And when interpreted literally, The Old Testament requires there to be a future earthly kingdom. Now, Paul Benware, Kyle and I have been quoting him a lot. We got this chart from his book. It's an excellent book. If you just want to buy one book that kind of goes over this study on your own, 
I would recommend Ben Ware's book, but he gives two simple purposes for the millennial kingdom, two purposes of why the millennial kingdom is so important. God's great purpose, and I quote, this is from his book, God's great purpose in establishing his future kingdom on this present earth is, here's the first one, to fulfill his many promises given in the scriptures. And, here's the second one, to clearly demonstrate to all of creation that he alone is sovereign God. I wholeheartedly agree with Benware. God is faithful, he will keep his word. And the Millennium Kingdom clearly demonstrates God's sovereignty over everything that he has made. In fact, one of the main purposes of the Millennial Kingdom is to fill aspects of the Abrahamic Covenant found in Genesis 12. Now, this was a message that we taught way back in the beginning, and I've got a chart up there. You remember this chart. I focus mostly on the Abrahamic covenants. We really didn't get to the sub-covenants. In fact, some of you wrote me letters like, what, what's up with that, Star? You promised us and did not deliver. We wanted more. And I'm sorry, I'll take you to Whataburger or something. I'm sorry I hurt you. Well, here is why the covenants are so important. Because what does the Abrahamic covenant promise? Land, seed, and what? Blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. During this thousand-year reign, God will demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Savior of Israel. He is not done with Israel. God faithfully keeps his word. So what does this Palestinian covenant promise? Well, in Deuteronomy 30, it promises that Israel will permanently own the land of Canaan. Does Israel own the land today? Let me, let me qualify that. Does Israel own some of the land today? Yes. Do they own all of what's been promised? No. God promises them that they will have it. When will they have it? Well, it hasn't happened yet. So it'll happen in the millennial kingdom. Israel will be spiritually converted, nationally restored. Christ will be their king. All of that is in that Deuteronomy 30 covenant. What about the Davidic covenant? 2 Samuel 7, 12. I read this to us last week. This promises that a king would arise from the line of whom? What's the name of the covenant? David. From the line of David, the Messiah would come. And not only is he going to come through the line of David, but he will reign on David's throne. Has that happened yet? No. And this Davidic throne is not a heavenly throne. I, I could do a whole message just comparing the different thrones. There's a great white throne. There's a heavenly throne. There's this Davidic throne. They're all different. They all happen in different phases. That's another message. But this Davidic covenant promises that the seed, that Messiah would come through David and reign on a throne. And then we have the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, which promised the nation of Israel the blessings of a spiritual transformation of the heart, a forgiveness of sins, and national regeneration. Does Israel today worship Christ as the Messiah and Lord? Do they? No. When will that happen? God promises that will happen. Well, it's going to happen in this thousand-year millennial kingdom. And since none of these covenant promises have been completely fulfilled, there must be a literal fulfillment sometime in the near future. See, that's the point. The, the millennial kingdom is important because God is faithful. 
And when he has promised to do something, he will do it. Now, like Chris was talking about, when we encounter trials and troubles and difficulties, how does the faithfulness of God help us in those moments of difficulty? Has God kept his word yesterday? Has he? Has he been faithful in your past? Is he being faithful today? Why do you think he won't be faithful tomorrow? Whatever it is you're facing, whatever difficulty, whatever trouble it is, God is a covenant-keeping God. Let that truth settle in your heart. Let it become the foundation of your response. So the covenants are very important. God will keep his word. The millennial kingdom fulfills those. Now the fact is, it isn't until we get to the New Testament that we actually learn how long this millennial kingdom will last. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. This is really the proof text. By proof text, I mean it is the key text that talks about the millennial kingdom. Don't worry, we are going to read some of those Old Testament passages later. Not all of them. We'll get to those. Revelation 20. I'm going to start in verse 1. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Who are these people? The martyrs killed in the tribulation period. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then verse seven, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Notice the events. In verses one to three, I covered this last week. What happens? Christ gives this angel power, a key. He binds the hands of Satan, throws him into the pit. And remember, the pit is not the lake of fire. Remember the illustration I used last week. The pit is the jail cell. It's the temporary holding facility. Lake of fire is max security prison. You never escape, you never get out. For a thousand years, this pit was created for really evil angels as well as Satan. To be sealed. What does sealing mean? It says he will not have power to deceive the nations. What does that mean? During the millennial kingdom, Satan will be unable to influence, to tempt, to lead astray, to lie, because he's the father of lies. And at the end, in verse 7, he will be released for a short time. Verse 4, notice what it says. There are thrones John sees thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. 
thrones, implying someone will be ruling, someone will have authority. We have the throne of David, which Christ is seated on, and then apparently there's others who are going to have thrones ruling under, with Christ. In fact, verse 6 confirms this idea as we see the saints reigning with Christ for this thousand years. And then in verse 4, we have the, the first resurrection. Now, I spoke of this last week in the second coming. Who gets resurrected? All of the Old Testament saints that have been killed as well as any of the martyrs. They're resurrected. That's what's called the first resurrection. And all of those who have been resurrected at the second coming, they enter into the millennial kingdom in glorified bodies. We covered that last week. And then verse 5, what does it talk about? It speaks of a, another resurrection. In fact, we call this, get this, this is incredible theological term. Are you ready? We call this the second resurrection. Do you get that? Why do we call it the second resurrection? Because it happens secondly. I know. I went to seminary. Why is this resurrection differently? Because if you are resurrected the second time, you are resurrected to judgment to the great white throne. So I don't want to steal Kyle's thunder. Next week he's talking about the great white throne. The second judgment is judgment unto hell. The first judgment is judgment unto life, which happens at the second coming. They enter into the millennial kingdom. So again, come back next week. That was like a, a baby spoiler for next week. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That's why this first resurrection, this is a good thing because there'll be priests and reigning with Christ. And then verse seven, God releases Satan. Now, are any of you scratching your heads? Just leave him in there. Why unlock the key? Angel, you want to go lose that thing? Why in the world does God release Satan at the end of this thing? Well, look at verses 8 and 9. It's for his final act of rebellion. Satan will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. This is the final battle of act of rebellion, the battle of Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Basically, Christ is reigning in Jerusalem with all of the saints and unbelievers at the end of the millennial kingdom gather around to fight Christ. And notice what it says. After a long and protracted battle, Christ almost lost the battle, but at the end he... I'm sorry, is that what your text says? What does the word of God say happens to those who try to fight Jesus? <laughs> Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. What kind of battle is that? Christ didn't even have to get off his throne. Why in the world would God release Satan? Well, we're gonna talk about that a little bit later on. So Revelation 20, verses one to seven becomes our proof text. This is where we get the idea of 1,000. But here's the question. And I cannot tell you how much ink has been spilt trying to answer this one simple question. What does 1,000 mean? Books. Dissertations. 
I started to go down this rabbit trail and I said, stop, I cannot do this. I would have missed preaching this morning because I would have been still diving down this rabbit hole. What does a thousand mean? I just want to be honest. There is no question that sometimes numbers should be interpreted figuratively. Now, remember when I say figuratively, I mean like a figure of speech, where a number doesn't mean a literal number. The number represents something else. In fact, I want to give you an example of that. Do you remember when Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive his brother in Matthew 18, 21? You remember that? Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven? Very religious, Peter. And what does Jesus answer? No, but I say to you, 70 times seven. All right, any math geniuses out there, help me out. What does 70 times seven equal? Apparently, we do not have a lot of math geniuses. What does it mean? 490. Sweet. Did you know that? That means you only have to forgive 490 times. Ladies, count. When your husband reaches 491, you are cut off, out. I never knew that was in the Bible. Why are we not preaching on this? Is that what Jesus means? That would be a literal interpretation of what Jesus said. Now, how do we know that's not what Jesus means? Because our principle of interpretation, we look for things in the grammar. We look for things in the context. We look for things in the context of the immediate passage as well as all of Scripture. Sometimes we even go historically to look at archaeology and other things to try to understand when Jesus is walking with his disciples and he tells a parable of seeds and they're probably walking in and there's different types of soil and that helps us historically to understand what Jesus means. But in this case, is there any grammatical clue that would help us to understand 490 means anything other than 490? What does Jesus tell right after this interchange? The story of the unforgiving Servant or slave. Do you remember the point that Jesus made in that story? If the king can forgive you an unforgivable debt, then you must forgive others as you have been forgiven. What was the point of the story? Jesus, God, forgave you a debt that you could never repay. No matter how many times other people sin against you, it will never come close to the debt that you owe God. He forgave you, therefore how often should you forgive? Infinitely. So what did 70 times 7 mean? A lot, a lot, a lot. Never stop, never stop, never stop. How do we know that? Because of the context and the story that Jesus told. It explains the figure of speech. Does that make sense? So that's one example where a number does not literally mean a number. It stands for something else. But typically we find clues in the grammar or the context to help us understand that. Now, Chris, why in the world are you belaboring this point? Because it's important. One of the arguments that some make against my view or the the premillennial view, which I'll get into in a second, is that Revelation is full of figurative language. Is that true? Is Revelation full of figurative language? Absolutely. I don't know if Jesus is really going to be on a white horse or if that white horse simply symbolizes what I explained last week, that the, the Roman, it was like, a, like that, that symbolized victory and conquering. I don't know if, is a sword really going to be coming out of Jesus' mouth? 
I don't think so. It's probably figurative. So that's one of the arguments they make. A thousand years doesn't mean a thousand. It's figurative because Revelation is full of figurative language. I'll give them that. But at the end of the day, we have to take each word, each verse, each text, each chapter, literally. Because words and numbers, grammar, it has meaning. And God communicated the word of God to us in a way that we would be able to understand what he is saying and how we are to believe and therefore live. I'll just give you one example. In Revelation 20, look at verse 3. The end says, after these things, he, Satan, must be released for what? What does it say? A short time. Why does John say a short time here and not use a specific number? Because what is John trying to communicate? It's an indefinite period of time, but it's going to be short. Language, grammar, it's important. So because we don't have any grammatical or contextual reasons in Revelation 20 to interpret the number in a figurative way, we must interpret it literally. A thousand years means a thousand years. And especially if we interpret all of those Old Testament passages literally as well. So that's why this is important. The millennial kingdom is important. This brings us to our next point the positions of the millennial kingdom, the positions. Now, these positions don't agree on when the second coming will happen in relation to the millennial kingdom. They also don't agree on what the millennial kingdom is. I am giving you a very short summary. You're going to have to study this on your own. So our first view, I've got a chart. Oh, it's up there. Thank you. Ah, millennialism. The word ah, A, stands for no. So what does that mean? No millennial kingdom. That's what this view... And and to be fair, that's a little misleading because those who are in the all-millennial camp, they do believe in a millennial kingdom. They just don't believe it's literal and physical. So all-millennial is is a very unfortunate name because they do believe in the millennial kingdom. They just redefine it. This is probably one of the most popular views today. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you were all-millennial. And if you are, we can still go have Whataburger together. We can be friends. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, I love you. Amillennialism is the view that there is no sufficient scriptural ground for the expectation of a literal, physical, 1,000-year millennial kingdom where Christ will rule on earth. Rather, it's a spiritual kingdom That refers to Christ's rule in the hearts of his people during the church age. So that's why on the chart, what do you see? Church age equals what? Millennial kingdom. So the ah-millennial position, or to shorten it, ah-mill position, they believe that we are in the millennial kingdom when? Right now. You're in it. I'm in it. Again, because there's no distinction between church and Israel. So the kingdom of God is now present in the world through his word, his spirit, and his church. Now, what are some of the distinctives of this view? Well, they have a spiritualized interpretation. Revelation 24, how do they define a thousand years? It means simply a really long, long time. In fact, how long has it actually been since Christ died? Over 20,000 years. That's, That's long. So that's how they would interpret this. They spiritualize it. 
They believe the church replaced Israel in God's program. So again, they, they, Kyle went through covenantal theology and dispensational theology. Typically, Amil would be in the covenantal theology side. Tribulation and millennial blessing are presently coexisting, meaning we're experiencing tribulation now as well as millennial blessing at the same time. The second coming of Christ is one singular event, including all the judgments followed by the eternal state. That's why we have this kind of Christ coming down, us going up, and then that ushers in eternity. So there's one judgment, one resurrection. Although there are different camps even in the Amil, but I won't get into that. Let you study that on your own. And this is a big one for me. They believe that Satan was bound at the first coming of Christ, not the present. Not at the millennial kingdom. Not at the second coming. So when Revelation 20 verses 1 to 3 is talking about Satan being bound, those in the Amil camp will say it happened when? At the cross, because that's when Satan was defeated. Christ rose from the dead. What are some of the... And in fact, this is interesting. I was thinking about this. How many of you have gone to one of those churches where they do a, a play and it basically talks about heaven and hell and end times? And you go from room to room and it shows you know, someone living their life and then the next room there's a car accident and there's like you know, church members all splayed out like they're dead and there's fake ketchup on their face and they're like, ah, I'm dead. And then you go to the next room and what do you see? It's the second to last room. What is it? It's a throne. And they don't put a person on there because then we have to burn them at the stake because, you know, you don't want to represent God. That would be bad. So they, they put a light or something, and it's bright, and, and, what, and they show people walking up to it, and what happens? The believers go where? To the... How many of you were paying attention last week? Which side do the believers go to? If you get this wrong, you go to hell. <laughs> Which side do you go to? The sheep go to the wow, we need to work on this, church. And they show this. It's one judgment. And they go to the right, and then the next person comes up, and what happens? And they hang their head, and they go, oh! Where do they get that from? It's their eschatology. It's their end times. They believe that there's one judgment. And so the, the Bema seed and the great white throne and the sheep and the goats, it all gets kind of put into one thing where the judgment seat happens up in heaven and then Christ comes down and, and it's all happening in one time. Next time you go to one of those things, I, and those things scared the dickens out of me when I was a kid. I think that was the intent. Next time you go to one of those things, you know, ask one of the angels, hey, hey, can I ask you a question? Are you all millennial? <laughs> Great conversation starter. They'll be, no, no, I've had all my shots, thanks. <laughs> what are some of the challenges of this view? First, literal interpretation. There's no contextual evidence, no grammar evidence that would mean a thousand is anything other than a thousand. In fact, the reason why they have to take revelation allegorically or spiritually is because they translate all the Old Testament passages allegorically and spiritually. Another challenge with this is if the abyss is simply a metaphor indicating Satan's power to influence nations has been diminished now, then how do we deal with all of the passages that clearly state Satan is the God of this world? 
What about 1 John 5.19 where it says Satan is the God of this world? Why would John call him the God of this world if he was imprisoned, spiritually speaking? How about Ephesians 2.2 where Paul says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air? That doesn't sound diminished. So if you hold this view, you have to work, and there's a whole bunch of other ones that talk about Satan is alive and well, prowling about like a warring lion. Does that sound diminished? No. So that's a significant challenge that those in the amillennial camp have. There's a couple other ones, but that's enough. Next is postmillennialism. I'm going to go through this really quick. Postmillennialism. This one's fun. I like this one. Postmillennialism simply says, and again, what is post? After. So post-millennium believes that Christ will come after the millennial kingdom. And post-millennialism is the view that though Christian, through Christian influence, society will continue to improve until it reaches a utopian-like state. That's why there's a line. And so right now, we're kind of, if you're post-millennial, you're kind of in this view, and the church is fulfilling the Great Commission, and we're doing all this incredible gospel work, and then at some point, the millennium is going to be ushered into this world, and, and, and the church is going to be growing and strong, and then that will lead us up into everything at the end. And so they, they have the same view in some ways as the all-millennial camp. Therefore, it is believers who bring in the millennial kingdom, not Christ. It's you and me. Christ will return after this general period of peace and prosperity has been established. Now, when this view first came out, and this, was, this came out later in church history, when this view came out, it was incredibly attractive. Why? Because if you're preaching this to the church, you're like, you can do it. We win. We're going to win. And what did the church go out and do? They started sharing their faith and they got excited and they went on missions and they went next door and they, they, they started caring for the sick and the poor and the homeless. And then guess what happened? World War II. World War II happened and all of a sudden, all of those who were in the post-millennial camp realized this is not how it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be getting better. And when World War II happened, what happened? Why can't we all just get along? There's very few that hold this view today. Because even from World War II till today, do you feel like things are getting better? I mean, our courts are abolishing marriage, transgenderism, I mean, all of the things that people are struggling with, and it doesn't seem like things are getting better. Does it feel like we're winning, church? Even the church is weak. You go to England, and they're turning churches into pubs. So hardly anybody holds this view anymore. I'm not going to cover any distinctives. You can study it on your own. And then the last one, premillennialism. Wow, try saying that 10 times fast. Premillennialism. Pre means what? Before. Amil, no millennium. Postmill, post means after. Pre means Christ will come back before the millennium. You get it? trying to understand the terms. So premillennialism is the view that Christ will return to earth literally and bodily before the millennial age begins and that by his presence a kingdom will be instituted on earth over which he will reign. Christ will reign. 
So that whole millennial kingdom, Christ is reigning for a thousand years. In this kingdom, all of Israel's covenants will be literally fulfilled, and it will continue for a thousand years, after which this world will be destroyed. The old heavens, the old earth will be destroyed, and what will God do? Create a new heaven and a new earth. This is the view that I hold. What are its distinctives? Well, this is the oldest of the three views. Now, that might surprise you because if, you're in, if you have been taught on millennialism, you have been told that your view is the longest. But when you study through church history, and I'm not going to take the time to defend this. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it afterwards. You can go look in, in church history yourself. But it wasn't really until the third century, uh, Origen was the one who came up with this whole spiritualized method of interpretation. So by the third century, by the fourth century, Augustine latched onto it. And by that time, premillennialism and amillennialism switched places. And amillennialism for all of those years, from really the third century on, and it wasn't really probably until the 15th century in the Reformation when they recovered premillennial, premillennial view. So from basically the third, fourth century all to the 15th, it was amill. Now, what is another distinctive? This, there will be a literal thousand-year kingdom on earth established by Christ. How many times is a thousand repeated in Revelation 20? I don't know, Chris. I'm not looking at my text right now. You want me to give you the answer? Six times. Why does God typically repeat things in the Bible? Why is holy, holy, holy meaningful? What does repetition do grammatically and contextually in the Bible? It emphasizes, it shows something, the importance of something. Six times, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Satan is locked up for a thousand years. After a thousand years, he's let out. We reign for a thousand years. And there's a clear distinction between Israel and the church, especially relating to the fulfillment of biblical covenants. This view uses a consistent method of literal interpretation, especially for Revelations chapter 19 and 20. And the millennium is possible and necessary because not all the promises given to Israel have happened yet. God doesn't lie. So the concept of a literal earthly kingdom is an outgrowth of the overall kingdom teachings in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, what are the challenges to this view? I want to be fair. I want to tell you the weaknesses of the view that I hold. Is that fair? Get out your pen. Write these down. There is only one text in the Bible that teaches this. Do you realize that? Revelation 20 is it. In fact, that's one of the number one arguments that the Amil position would say. If that was so important a doctrine, it would be repeated in other places. To which I say, well, isn't one passage enough? They say, here's another weakness. Revelation is full of figurative language. So how can you take this one thing literally? I already went over that. Here's another good one, 2 Peter 3.8. Peter says, a thousand years is like a day, a day in God's eyes. Peter uses that illustration. He's even talking about end times. So those in the all-mill camp would take 2 Peter 3.8 and say, see, even Peter is, is, is saying that a thousand years is like a day, meaning a thousand years to us is forever. A thousand years to God is what? A moment. To them, that... See, we'll see, a thousand years can mean more than a literal thousand years. What's the challenge with that? What is 2 Peter 3.8? There's one little word in the middle of that. A thousand years is what? Like 
And whenever we see like and as, particularly in prophecy or other places, what does like, okay, any English teachers in here? What does like or as tell us about the text? It's a simile. This is like this. So it seems grammatically that Peter is using a simile here to show that God counts time differently than us. And is that true? Yes. So I don't think that we can take this passage and use it as the lens through which we read Revelation 20 and say, see, a thousand doesn't mean a thousand. But again, this is one of the the weaknesses of my argument that they would say. And it's true. It's fair. It's a legitimate challenge. Every view has some holes to it, places where the pieces don't quite fit, including the premillennial view. And as my Greek and Hebrew professor said in seminary, you're just trying to find the the positions that have the fewest holes in it. It's very humbling that I can't fit it all together and I can't understand it all because who am I not? I'm not God and I have to be okay living in the tension. But I would encourage you this, be gracious when you interact with others from different views and make sure to be a good Berean. Don't don't say, well, I'm premillennial because that's what my church taught me. That's what Chris holds. He's an okay guy. I mean, I like Kyle better, but you know, I'll, I'll go with what Chris said. So you study it. You come to your own conviction. Well, let's move on. The nature of the millennial kingdom. The nature of the millennial kingdom. What will it be like? Well, first of all, it's going to be a spiritual kingdom. Just because it's an earthly kingdom, this doesn't mean it won't have spiritual characteristics. It's going to be an unprecedented time of righteousness, holiness, and truth. How do we know this? Well, let's go into some of these Old Testament passages. The millennium will be marked by righteousness. Why? Because that's what Isaiah 60, verse 21 says. It says, then all your people will be righteous. Has there been any period of time in Israel's history where that was true? Again, what's the key word? All. All. And why is that true in the millennial kingdom? Because who is bound? Satan. And who is reigning physically? Christ. Also, holiness will characterize Jerusalem as well as everyone and everything in it. You can look at Joel 3, 17. In fact, Zechariah 14, 20 to 21, again, all these verses are on your handout. It even says in Zechariah that the cooking pots are gonna be holy. The cooking pots themselves will be holy. In fact, Jerusalem really becomes the center for worship in the millennial kingdom. What stands over the Temple Mount right now? Dome of the Rock. Who claims that? Predominantly Muslims, but who else claims it? Catholic? Orthodox? Jew? Guess what? The millennial kingdom, who will claim it? He will destroy that thing. The temple will be built and it will become the center for worship. It's amazing. Also, we know the indwelling, the Holy Spirit will produce a universal knowledge of God. Think about that. In the millennial kingdom, the Holy Spirit will produce a knowledge of God for everybody. I've got a verse up on the screen. I know sometimes you have a hard time finding Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 
verses 25 to 27. Read it along with me. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. See, this is part of what Jeremiah 31 passage is talking about, that new covenant character. When does that actually happen? It happens here in the millennial kingdom. Joel 2.28 says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Again, that hasn't happened yet. When will it happen? Here in the millennial kingdom. Also, joy, physical health, peace, and economic prosperity will abound. You got Zephaniah 3. Ezekiel 36, 35 says, This desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. Wow. The millennial kingdom is often compared to the Garden of Eden before sin entered into the picture. Again, Adam and Eve were not in completely glorified bodies. Do you believe that? If Adam and Eve were in glorified bodies before Genesis 3, would Genesis 3 have happened? No, why? Because glorified body, you can't sin. They didn't have a glorified body yet. Why? Because they didn't have the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is why they could still sin in that time. They hadn't been glorified and perfected in spirit and in flesh. And so these, those resurrected, those given glorified bodies will be not able to sin in the millennial kingdom. You recognize there was going to be a whole group of people, all of the Old Testament saints, all of the ones who were martyred in that seven-year tribulation people uh, period, they're going to be given a glorified body. For that thousand years, remember, these are the people you do not want to play tennis with, remember? Because they won't get tired. They're going to be there. They can't sin. But all of those Christians who got saved during the tribulation, who did not die, guess what? They go right into the millennial kingdom. And that's why at the end of a thousand years, they're going to have children. And think about that. If the curse is removed, will people be able to get pregnant more rapidly? There'll be no miscarriage in the millennial kingdom. going to be more and more babies born from those that do not have glorified bodies. And so these two, these, these young babies, as they grow up over a thousand years, they too will have to decide to choose or reject Christ even during this time where Satan is bound and sin's effect is greatly reduced. During this thousand year period, it will be as hard to serve Satan as it is to serve Christ today. Let me say that again. During this thousand-year period, it will be as hard to serve Satan as it is to serve Christ today. Do you find it easy to serve Christ? And, and believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the Word of God. You have a church that teaches you and disciples you and helps you. And, and it's hard. Why? Because of our flesh and because of Satan and his work but in heaven that's going to be flipped now we know that some reject Christ I already read Revelation 28 what happens there's the battle of Gog and Magog so apparently even with Christ on a throne in the temple in Jerusalem 
the glory of the Lord filling that place, some will still reject him. Because that's what Revelation 20 says. He gathered them together. You know, we don't know how long this is. It seems like there is a period of time. I don't know that this is instantaneous. He goes around and gathers all of these non-glorified babies that were born that have rejected Christ at this time and they gather together and they, he puts an army together and they come to fight and they get utterly destroyed. Now here's where I answer that question. Why would God allow Satan to be bound for a thousand years only to release him to start his final rebellion? Well, I think God does this for two reasons. Number one, he will show that a perfect millennial environment in the physical, economic, and social realms will not change men's hearts. Because no matter how good that millennial kingdom society will be, it's not enough to save you. A better life is not the same as spiritual conversion. This is the problem with those who preach a social gospel today. The social gospel says, before we can give them... The gospel, we have to go care and minister to them and, and then eventually it becomes where we don't really do that. We just try to let the gospel come through through our actions and they never tell them the gospel. And In fact, they think the gospel is going to convert them through that good work and bettering their society and their health. That's the first reason. Secondly, God will show that universal knowledge of himself in the world is not the same as personal knowledge of God in the heart. Just because they have a universal knowledge does not mean that they have a personal knowledge of God. Men's hearts can be changed only by a supernatural act of grace, not by knowledge and certainly not by social betterment. This may sound like I'm saying Christians should not be responsible. I'm not. I believe we have a civic duty and I believe we should do it. I believe we should vote biblically to the glory of God. I think we should go feed the homeless. I think we should go out and care for those who don't have shoes. I don't know about you. I got a lot of shoes. They don't have any. We should feed the hungry and the hopeless, try to provide shelter for the homeless. We should. It's what Christ did. We have those civic responsibilities. But as I'm doing those things, Christ is the answer. Amen? Only Christ can change their hearts. So I think the millennial kingdom and even Satan are coming at the end of it, coming out and rebelling, and there's people that follow him to their utter destruction. It's a great reminder for us. Well, what about theocratic rule? Theocratic rule. What does theocratic mean? It's a big word. Simply means a government that's ruled by God, or sometimes by God's anointed so that's what a theocratic rule means. And in this case, it's not someone who's being appointed as in like Saul or King David. In this case, who is it? It's Christ himself. Christ will be present. He will be ruling with absolute authority. Remember the passage that I read in Luke 1, last week? The angel tells Mary, this baby will be Messiah. This baby will sit on a throne and he will rule and his kingdom will endure forever. Even the angel prophesied to Mary about what Christ would do someday. Turn with me to Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. It's to the right of Psalms. Isaiah 2. 
Isaiah 2, starting in verse 2, it says, Now it will come about that in the last days, what does last days mean? End times. That in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Are people streaming to hear gospel today? No. But here they are streaming. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. It's an amazing prophecy about the millennial kingdom. So what is this theocratic rule? Well, Israel will have a principal role in the Messiah's government. We get that from Isaiah 14. Other individuals will have important but lesser roles in the millennial government. You can look at Isaiah 32.1. In fact, even Jesus in Matthew 19.28, remember what he told the disciples? This is interesting. He told them that they will sit on the 12 thrones judging the the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 disciples were going to judge Israel. Christ promised that. Has that happened yet? No. When will that happen? Well, guess where there's other thrones? It's not just the throne of David upon which Christ is ruling. There's other thrones. We believe the 12 disciples will be also ruling in some governmental form. Again, it's, it's a millennial kingdom. Christ is ruling, but he has others ruling this government. In fact, Ezekiel 45, verses 8 and 9 speaks of God's princes leading their tribes, which more than likely refers to the tribes of Israel. Now, in true American fashion, this is about the time where we say, what about us? Because if you're not Jewish, then you're Gentile. What about us? Well, I think we're going to be enjoying Christ. That's a plus. You're going to be enjoying peace. That's a plus. What else? Don't forget Revelation 20. Seems that we will be reigning with Christ. What does that mean? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know. What does it mean to reign with Christ for a thousand years? Under Christ and the 12 disciples, and then there's going to be a a, a system of, of others ruling, and then we're under there somewhere. What does that mean to reign with him? I don't know. But I remember when I was studying the judgment seat of Christ, that there's a lot of those texts that seem to indicate that part of the reward that we will receive at the, at the Bema Seat, the Judgment Seat of Christ, will be opportunity for position and authority in the Millennial Kingdom and maybe even for eternity. And so maybe that just means more opportunity to serve based on your faithfulness here. Well, this is one of the main reasons or purposes of the Millennial Kingdom for God to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is sovereign Overall creation, the theocratic rule, Christ the King will reign. Christ has to come and remove all earthly kingdoms and establish his own rule over the earth, which, by the way, this is another reason why I don't hold the amillennial position. Because again, the amillennial position believes that we're in the millennial kingdom now, but this doesn't describe Christ sharing his kingdom with anybody as if Christ could reign his kingdom 
and America and Russia and Japan and all the others are reigning also. So I think this is another reason why the, uh, the premillennial view is better because there's no coexistence between God's kingdom and man's kingdom as described here. What about worship? We've looked at the spiritual kingdom, the theocratic rule. What about worship? Well, worship of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be the only form of activity, but it will certainly be the most important activity during the millennium. I got a whole bunch of verses there you can read. The new temple in Jerusalem will be the center of worship. Again, people are streaming to hear Christ teach. Why? I would have liked to have been following around the tabernacle. Remember when God revealed himself in the form of a, a what by day? Cloud and what by night? Fire. And they were following him. And the, it says that the presence and the glory of God would fill the temple. You realize that in the millennial kingdom, Christ will be on the throne. You'll get to go up to him and say, thank you for dying for me. And he'll look you in the eye and say, I love you. How could I not? And the whole time, what is filling the temple? The glory of God. What in the world is that like? Now, I get paid to study the Bible. I get paid to, to, to try to fit all this together. And I'm studying the Shekinah glory of God. And I still don't get it. I don't comprehend the greatness and holiness of God. But when we get there, and we will, you're going to get to experience it, to see Christ reigning in the glory of God filling that place. And what will you say? It was worth it. It was worth it. My faith. I thought I had to give up so much to follow Christ, but when I'm seeing Christ in the glory of God, it was worth it. What else are you going to say in that moment? Glory of God will fill that place. Now here's where we get to one of the more controversial parts animal sacrifice. Ezekiel 43 and Ezekiel 45 talk about a sacrificial system that will be developed and instituted for these thousand years in the temple. I think the sacrifices involved will be memorial in nature, meaning they don't actually purify you. Whose blood is enough to purify us from our sins? Christ. This is not a return to the Old Testament Levitical system. But remember, there's going to be glorified people and there's going to be non-glorified people. And for those non-glorified people to come into the temple and to sacrifice an animal and to see that blood shed, what does it remind them of? It doesn't, it's not efficacious in purifying them. What does it remind them of? Christ already shed his blood for me. I could be wrong. I don't think we can be super dogmatic. Again, this is another one. Tombs written on this subject. You can study it on your own. And then worship, there's going to be other nations that join in the worship of the Lord. In fact, Zechariah 14, it says, any who are left of all the nations, meaning those nations who didn't rebel at the, the battle of Gog and Magog, any who are left over, it says they will go up from year to year to worship the king. That's you and me. 
That's worship. What about social and physical life? Earth will know health and prosperity unequaled since the Garden of Eden, Amos 9, 13 to 14. In fact, I've got Jeremiah 31, 12 up on the screen for you. It says, they will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. Never languish again. The curse that was placed on this creation at Genesis 3 is removed in the fall. It's gone. Conditions that breed disease and poverty and death will be non-existent. Those who are born during the millennium will still have a fallen nature. Therefore, they're still capable of sin, not the, the glorified bodies. They are not capable of sin, but these are the others that were born. But the opportunity to sin will be significantly hampered and almost eliminated. You can read Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 36. All those passages are on your handout. And this is cool. This is amazing. It's just like our good God, the blind, the deaf, the lame, the speechless will experience healing. Isaiah 29, 18. Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. And this is amazing. Turn over to Isaiah 65, as if that wasn't enough. Isaiah 65, verse 20. Isaiah 65, verse 20. I don't have time to read this, but I'm going to read it anyway. Because I have the microphone. Isaiah 65, 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. What does that mean? Remember how you read the accounts of Genesis right after the fall in Genesis 3 and it says, and then they died at a ripe age of 900. And what do you think when you read that? I would never want to be 900 years old. I'm hurting at 46 and then over each chapter, that, that gets a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less because of the, call, the fall of sin. And now, how long do you and I expect to live? Come on, 85. Come on, 90. You know what this verse is saying? If you die at the age of 100, it, it's as if you died too early. So I believe what this prophecy is talking about is that because the curse is removed, we will start living for a very long time. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was swimming. No need for a gym membership in the millennial kingdom. Finally. In fact, even the animals will coexist in peace. I have Isaiah 11, 6 to 8 up there. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. That sounds cool. I've always wanted a snake. Shelley keeps saying, no, who doesn't want a cobra? And not just any cobra, but a cobra I can, I'd call him snaky. 
Do you want to hold Snakey? How is that possible? If you look at Genesis 1.30, you realize, again, Genesis 1, before Genesis 3, before the fall, God talks about how he gave them all the animals and birds, and it specifically says he gave them all the plants of the earth for food. No carnivores in the Garden of Eden. The fall comes, and what do we have? I know you really want to pet the lion, but if you do, it will eat you. And snakey will bite you. But when the curse is removed, how cool is that? You can go hug a bear. I can hardly bear it just thinking about it. Sorry. The curse is removed. Not only are we going to get along, just think about that, parents. Your kids will have diminished fighting. Your husband will love you in a way that you've never experienced. But you get to have a pet lion and not worry about, hey, where's Johnny? <laughs> like, remember Ben, the, the, the gentle Ben? Remember that movie? I always thought, who in the world keeps a bear? Like, what if they're like, hey, where's the little boy? Anyway, that won't happen in the millennial kingdom. Finally, a worldwide utopia will exist where all injustice, disease, conflict, poverty, and inequality will be removed. There's not going to be any racism. No street people, few deaths, no starvation, no riots, no drugs, hardly any crime, no gangs, no army, and finally, world peace. Think about that. Miss America finally gets her dream I just want world peace. It's coming. This morning we have examined three aspects of the millennial kingdom so that we might grow in awe of God's transforming power, so that we might grow in thankfulness to our powerful, saving, and gracious God. See, a proper understanding of end times should leave us with the recognition that with Without Christ, we are hopeless. Should motivate us to preach the only thing that has the power to transform society one person at a time, and that is the gospel. Because no matter how much technology advances in science and travel and medicine, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if someday we could power our cars with garbage? Like back to the future? That would be so cool. That might happen someday. No matter how rich we get, no matter how far we progress politically to bring peace to the world, these rare moments of peace and contentedness will never last. Why? Because the very core of mankind is corrupt with sin. Only Christ can fix our sin problem because he already took our sin and died for it. And he alone offers the ultimate peace for those who would turn from their sin to follow him. And I pray that today would be the day that if you don't have the confidence that when he comes back, you're going with him. I pray that today would be the day that you receive the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ. 
Christ the King will return to reign. Church, are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that this is a topic that is hard for us to comprehend. It's hard for us to think about a time and a place where the curse is removed and where Satan is imprisoned, where we get to live and serve and somehow reign with Christ in person, where sickness and migraines, marital conflict, rebellious kids are removed and diminished, where humans get together and where we get to experience true peace. But Lord, your word talks about it and prophesies it in the Old Testament and the New. And so we believe it and we proclaim it. This morning we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. We long for his return. But until that time, Lord, would you help us to be ready? to be holy, to be prayerful, to be watchful, to be sober? And would you call us, give us the grace to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because there is a world that is going to hell. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.